Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, and we're coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL. I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney. I serve as the senior instructor at Institute on the Constitution, and with me is my Friday wonderful collaborator, Phil Duffy, our constitutional instructor. And we've begun last Friday morning a brand new series where we're looking at the history of human civil government. And it's important to know some of the history of human civil government to actually see how unusual our constitutional republic, that's right, we are a republic, not a democracy, how unusual our constitutional republic was. And uh, therefore, if you look at the overlay of human history, you realize how difficult it is to achieve that level of liberty that was achieved when our constitutional republic used to be obeyed. Uh, obviously, today we have uh, people in the White House and the uh, Supreme Court and the Congress who have no regard for that document whatsoever, uh, no loyalty to obey it, no desire to protect the God-given rights of we the people, which, by the way, our founder said in the Declaration of Independence, that was the only job of human civil government. That's right. Civil government wasn't to do things like determine that you had your seatbelt on when you were driving or you wore your bicycle helmet when you were out on bike trails or, oh, how much water you could flush down your toilet. All those crazy things that come out of civil government in Washington, D.C., as well as in our state cap. That's not the business of government at all. That's the business of we, the people, protecting our own uh, safety and so on. It's the business of human civil government, they said in the Declaration, to protect our God-given rights. And when a civil government restricts itself to only protecting our God-given rights, we have the maximum liberty uh, that can be experienced on earth. Uh, in fact, we have a better situation than any other civil government that has existed. And that's the point in us uh, doing this walk through uh, history, starting in ancient history. I'm going to start all the way back uh, in biblical history, and, and Phil's going to be walking through the ancient Near Eastern civilizations. But as we do so, we're going to see illustrated time and time and time again that liberty and uh, the government of the people, by the people, for the people, that government uh, by consent of the governed is, is almost unknown almost unknown. There's one example we'll talk about, but it's almost unknown in the history of the world. And the governments that even got closest to this, closest to approximating that liberty, such as Great Britain did uh, at a number of different junctures in its history, even those that got closest to it, they failed again and again because the reality is tyrants, that is those who want to rule uh, based on nothing other their, than their own brute force, and their their wealth, their power, uh, the number of people they command as their subject, these people never tire. And that is, if we win a a victory for liberty and we establish a a, a modicum of some form of liberty, the tyrant doesn't go home after that battle. No, we, we tend to go home. Oh, yeah, we had a victory. We got so-and-so elected. They're now representing us in Washington. Ah, we can go home and trust that they're going to do the right thing when they get down there in the cesspool that is Washington, D.C. And then we're shocked when a few years later we wake up and say, wait a minute, they become one of the swamp creatures down there. They're just as bad as the guy that we replaced uh, with them. And so we need to learn the lesson that vigilance is the only way that we can 
sustain our liberty. And our founders warned us of that, that if we think that liberty will be accomplished, you know, uh, showing up at the polls every four years and and turning a, a, a few number of knobs with the right letters behind them, that that's somehow going to preserve our liberty. We are fooling ourselves. And our founders warned us, unless we are willing generation to generation to generation to fight for our freedoms and fight for liberty, we will lose liberty. And as uh, John Adams said, when liberty is lost, it's extremely difficult, if not impossible, to recover it. And so that's really what we're about here. We, the people, the Constitution matters because we recognize that unless we, through a groundswell of support, a grassroots movement across the country, have people who love liberty and are willing to stand up and fight for liberty for the tyrants, who, by the way, are a very small minority of people in America. They're, They're a small percentage. We far outnumber them. We can overwhelm them easily if we choose to fight for liberty. But that battle for liberty really has to be based on an understanding of our founding documents, law and government. By the way, encourage you to check out our website here, 1180wfyl.com. That's 1180wfyl.com. Click on podcast, go to the bottom of the list. You'll find We the People. You'll find enormous resources available to you there resources to understand phrase by phrase the Declaration of Independence, phrase by phrase, clause by clause, the Constitution, all seven articles, phrase by phrase, clause by clause, the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments, and then uh, by phrase by phrase, the second, uh, the, the next batch, the 17 subsequent amendments to our Bill of Rights. We need to understand these things. We need to understand that because in order to hold our elected officials accountable, in order to choose proper people to represent us, we have to know the standard. And we've got to have that standard in mind when we select them. Not, oh, I like the color of their hair, or you know, I think they, they're, they're a good beauty pageant uh, candidate. No, no, no. That's not, we want somebody who's going to defend our liberty, but they've got to operate based upon the standards established uh, for our constitutional republic. Well, last week we began this series, and, and I began all the way back in the Garden of Eden and mentioned that it, uh, the whole reason that we need civil government is because Adam and Eve fell in the garden. They sinned against God. They threw off God's law, and they decided they were going to create their own legal, moral system of what is right and wrong. And so they threw that off as they took the the tree, the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. And in doing that, they brought all of earth and all of their descendants into the fall. So man's nature has been essentially changed as a result of the fall, and the result is that all men are sinners, as Romans 3.23 says. And Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. Sin brings destruction personally. It brings destruction to families and to, and to societies as a whole. Indeed, it does also to governments. And so the purpose of government was to protect the individual from other sinners. That is, people who chose to violate God's law. We find the very after Adam and Eve said the very first uh, sin mentioned, there may have been others in between that are unmentioned, but the first sin mentioned is murder. That's right. The first significant event is the two sons that Adam and Eve have born. Those two sons go at it, one son attacking the other and murdering him in the field. By the way, there was no guns. You know, there was no gunfire involved in Cain murdering Abel. You don't need a gun to murder somebody. And so gun control back then, I guess you would have to say, well, let's see, we better invent a rock 
control. You know, he pounded his head with a rock, perhaps, or or maybe he he sharpened the sword. We don't know the exact, but he murdered his brother, spilled his brother's blood there uh, on, on the field. Now, the curious thing, when we look at the rest of God's law, we see very clearly that God's law calls for the execution of murderers. When someone commits murder, essentially they have forfeited their life, and their life is to be taken because they have taken the life of another human being. And scripture says that that's because human life is absolutely sacred. But we find that Cain was not executed. In fact, Cain was exiled from human community. He said he was going to wander on the earth, east of Eden, and so on. But uh, uh, he was not executed. And that's kind of curious because we find later in God's word that it's very clear that execution is called for murder. Now, the explanation of why that is, is really after the flood, when God punished all of mankind, mankind became extremely evil, extremely wicked, violent in every way. And God saw that wickedness of man and decided, okay, it's time to hit the reset button. He found one man, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, one righteous man, his wife, his three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and their wives. So eight people gathered on the ark with two of each animal, and they survived the flood, the judgment of God that wiped out all the other sinners on earth. Now, when they were leaving the ark, as they were leaving the ark, and this is recorded for us uh, in Genesis chapter 9, uh, it is established here in verse 6, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God he made man. So here is the institution of human civil government. And human civil government is given the sword that which it can punish with death those who commit a capital crime. The capital crime focused on here, of course, is murder. Later on at Mount Sinai, other capital crimes are spelled out. But the uh, the idea of human civil government and the institution of human civil government did not come into existence until Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6. And it's clearly stated that if a man murders another human being, he has shed human blood, and therefore he, have, he has forfeited his life, and human civil government is instituted to execute that judgment that God has spelled out here in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6. Now, the reason why Cain was not executed, God had not instituted human civil government at the beginning of time. There was one and only one government God instituted, and that was in the Garden of Eden, and that was family government. When God brought together Adam and he had made Eve out of the rib of Adam and, and uh, he brought Adam out of his uh, you know first anesthesia, he was put to sleep by God. And so and he brought Eve to Adam and performed the first wedding ceremony, the first marriage took place, which and marriage is the foundation of the family government. We find later in scripture in Ephesians 5 and elsewhere that the husband is head of the wife. A husband is head of the family. He has a specific role given to him by God as head of the family government. But God never gave to family government the role of executing murderers. So think about that with Cain. You know, Adam and Eve went on to have other children, uh, Seth and, and uh, daughters that are unmentioned. So, so there's a there's a, a large progeny from Adam and Eve. Uh, but all of them were of the same family. And until Adam died, and Adam lived to be over 900 years old, so for 900 years, Adam was the head of the family government. Under him were the subheads of his uh, sons when they married and formed the family and so on. But the, the, 
the job God gave to family government is very elaborate, very extensive. It covers most areas of life, but one area it does not cover is the execution of murderers. That was a, a task that God gave to the civil government. In a sense, you could say God gave the civil government the sword, but God gave the family government the rod, that is the rod of discipline. And Proverbs talks about this, spare the rod, spoil the child, and that, that sort of thing. But uh, the, the sword was given to the civil government, not to the family government. So it told Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, there was no institution that God had uh, installed and ordained that could execute a murderer. But from this point forward, Genesis 9, verse 6, from this point forward, God has given that to uh, the responsibility of the fam- human, human civil government, not family government. Now, it's important to note here the reason why God requires the death penalty. Genesis 9, verse 6 says, For that is because in the image of God made he man. Human beings and human beings alone are made in God's image. No animal, cat, uh, or other you know creature that you, dog, horse, things that, you know, they are creatures, but they're not made in the image of God. Only human beings are made in the image of God. And this is very important to point out, not only that murder, therefore, is an attack against the image of God, God's image bearers in this world, but it's also the point here that uh, you, that the people that God created, because they're image bearers of God, have a right to life. That's right. The fact that murder is a crime, it's a crime identified by God, which penalty is going to be death. It's a crime against God's law. And therefore, the human beings, each and every human being has a right to life. Because you see, we are created the image of God. We have God given rights, the first of which, of course, is the right to life. And they spell this out in our Declaration of Independence that uh, God is the creator. And as the creator God, he has created each one of us. We are his creatures and, and he has created us in his image. Because we're created in the image of God, we have God given rights. All of this philosophy from the word of God was clearly understood by the founders of our constitutional republic, and that's why they established it. They established it because they wanted a government that would obey God's commands, like here in Genesis 9, 6, a government that would protect and defend the God-given rights of the people, not do whatever it pleases, not aggrandize itself and, and take bribes from China and Ukraine and who knows how many other countries, millions and millions of dollars paid to do the bidding of other countries. I think that is called treason, you know, but th- that's not the job of government. Well, the job of government is to protect the God-given rights and uh, obviously things like the J6 uh, prisoners, they're doing the opposite of protecting the God-given rights of we the people. But this is where civil government came into existence for the first time. God gave it justification. God brought it into existence. And therefore, we learn from the word of God what the principles of government are. This, again, is what our founders studied in in depth. In fact, they were informed by the preachers of the 40 years preceding the Declaration of Independence. Those preachers of the colonial pulpits preached the whole counsel of God. They didn't leave anything out, including what the Word of God says about law and government. In fact, some of those sermons uh, became, basically most sermons in those days were printed on the front page of the paper. The newspaper front page article, front page news, was the last sermon preached on Sunday uh, in, in the town church. 
Uh, and some of those sermons became so popular that they were not just printed in a town paper, but the next town nearby. And before you know it, people were mailing them to friends. And, and uh, some of those sermons were read by everyone, literally everyone that was literate in the colonies. One of those in uh, 1750 by uh, uh, Pastor Jonathan Mayhew of Boston West Church. And, and Mayhew pe- preached a sermon about the doctrine of unlimited submission. And he said that's a false doctrine. It's an unbiblical doctrine that we're to obey everything the civil government tells us to obey. His argument is we need to measure what civil government is telling us by the word of God to see if what they're telling us is actually uh, legitimate, if it is truly law or not. And that's a strange idea for many Americans to, to think that the pulpits would be instructing you in a philosophy of civil government. But that is exactly what the pulpits of America did in the 40 years leading up to the war for independence. And and honest historians agree that if it had not been for the Great Awakening, this spiritual revival, and it had not been for the colonial pulpits preaching what the Word of God says about law and government, our country never would have separated from Great Britain. You know, we'd still be speaking the King's English and under the King's law and all of that sort of thing. It happened because they understood what the Word of God had to say about law and government. I, 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 as a pastor, am committed to preaching those principles in the pulpit, and I get into a good bit of trouble and a good bit of criticism for doing so, because people today don't want to hear that, and other pastors don't want to have people preaching on these subjects, because, it uh, well, maybe it makes them look bad, I'm not sure, but they, they don't like it. They've expressed that very clearly to me. But the idea is that if God is the one who ordained human civil government, it is his law, therefore, that governs what human civil government can do and cannot do. So clearly, Genesis 9, verse 6 says, human civil government can execute murderers. In fact, that's its most important job. And boy, how are we doing on that one? Uh, not so good, at least in my state. There's not been an execution in more than 15 years. And I know that they basically said, yeah, it's on the books, but we're never going to execute anyone ever again. Well, what's the problem with that? Well, we see up in the city of Baltimore, a murder a day. Yes, a murder per day takes place. And of those murders, less than 4% of them are ever apprehended. That is, they ever catch the person who committed murder, let alone them brought to justice. So less than 4% are ever, you know, you're going to actually see behind bars and the average stay for a murderer who's who's actually execute, killed another human being not is not execution. They're going to be in prison for eight years. That's right. The average stay for a murderer is eight years. It's just, what? This is uh, opposite of, of what God's law. So our founders understood what the word of God said about law and government, what its jurisdictional boundaries were, because civil government on its own is not to determine what the boundaries of its own authority are. That's not its job. It's to do what our founders said, to obey the laws of nature and nature's God. And that's the whole argument in the Declaration of Independence. They're arguing that the king, King George III, is not obeying the laws of nature and nature's God, given to us in God's word. They're arguing instead, here's the 27 things the king has done in violation of the laws of nature and nature's God. I know this is a a, a kind of a, a wake-up moment for many people in, in our country that I teach these principles to because they say, what? You mean our whole system of government was based upon the biblical standards of law, government, and justice? Yes. Yes, and indeed it is. And that's if you carefully read the Declaration of Independence and understand what it is saying. 
So without that background, without that understanding, it would be easy for civil government to become uh, tyrannical. Uh, like King George III became tyrannical. He decided, you know, I'm the king, and I believe God has put me here as the king, because after all, I wasn't elected by the people of England. I was born into this position, and the people of England had nothing to do with my birth. You know, you could argue even my mother and father only had a participant role in my birth. It was God who brought me into this world, and therefore God is the one who ordained me to be king on the throne of England. And therefore, I can do whatever I please because I am God's regent here on earth. I'm God's viceroy. I'm the one who hears directly from God and does what God wants. And therefore, if I declare something to be law, you can't question that. You're just a mere subject of the king of England. You're a nobody. I'm the king. This is often called the divine right of kings, where the kings believe, you know, they're basically God's voice on earth. And whatever they do, therefore, is the will of God. And you have to obey it. You don't have a choice. And that was a, a philosophy our founders soundly rejected. And they rejected it again because of the great awakening that stirred them spiritually and because of the, the preaching that followed that, in fact, you could argue the Great Awakening went all the way up to uh, 1770, six years or five years before the war broke out, because uh, George Whitfield, the famous evangelist that preached all over in every town and, and city throughout the colonies, George Whitfield died in New Hampshire on a preaching mission, his final preaching mission, obviously. He died in 1770, just five years before the war broke out. So that entire Great Awakening period and the preaching from the pulpits of America laid the groundwork to establish our constitutional republic upon biblical foundations. And that is exactly what our founders were seeking to do. And so as we understand these things, and we're going to, you know, in the subsequent weeks, going to look at uh, further on in biblical history and, and try to elucidate those uh, essential principles of the God-ordained design of a republic, which was given at Mount Sinai, the Hebrew Republic, as we spell those things out, we're going to make those connections between what the formula was our founders were following in establishing our constitutional republic. And that means here's how we can restore that. But the first step in restoring that is to recognize that human civil government is a God-ordained institution, and it has a job description that God has given to it in his word. And that job description involves protecting the God-given rights of the people. And one of those protections, of course, is our right to life. And the way they protect our right to life, if someone takes our right to life, that is unjustly kills us, that's called murder. We're not talking about justified executions where you know the, the criminal is executed or someone uh, defending their own life against an attacker has to take the life of the attacker to protect their own life. Those are perfectly justifiable actions, and the Word of God spells those out as well. But an unjustified taking of innocent human life, God says the civil government's job is to punish that evildoer who has committed murder. And we could look at the arguments, and we will, but we won't take time this morning, but look at the arguments as to a human being, when do they begin? They begin at conception, and therefore the laws against murder include the baby in the womb, which means abortion is murder and ought to be treated uh, as murder. Well, Phil, why don't you bring us your thoughts on uh, ancient history? Thank you for the, the wonderful research you've done here. Well, there are two major points 
that were made previously concerning government. The first is that civil government, as defined by John Locke, has been the exception in history. And the second, there are two conflicting models of government, Locke's civil government and the model that has dominated history, the top-down model that is imposed on the people forcefully. Remember that Locke's definition of civil government was, no one can be put out of this estate and subjected to the political power of another without his own consent, which is done by agreeing with other men to join and unite a community for their comfortable, safe, and peaceable living, one amongst another, in a secure enjoyment of their properties, at a greater security against any that are not of it. Our history books teach us that Athenian government was, at one point in time, democratic, and that Rome was a republic before Julius Caesar replaced the republic with an empire under his rule. We need to look more closely at these ancient examples of governments to see how closely they match the criteria established by Locke. But first, let's look at government in earlier civilizations, starting with Samaria. According to Will Durant, in our Oriental heritage, government and law first appears in the early civilization of Samaria with its city kings. There are some stories of kings who were reformers, such as Eurykagina of Lagash, but one senses that the virtuous kings were in the minority from this comment by Durant. When their civilization was already old, about 2300 BC, Poets and scholars in Samaria tried to reconstruct its ancient history. The poets wrote legends of, of a creation, a primitive paradise, and a terrible flood that engulfed and destroyed it because of the sin of an ancient king. We get another sense for the nature of Sumerian kings from the Epic of Gilgamesh. The Academy of Ancient Texts calls this work perhaps the oldest written story on earth. Britannica opens its description of the Epic of Gilgamesh with this comment. The Ninevite version of the Epic begins with a prologue in praise of Gilgamesh, part divine and part human, the great builder and warrior, knower of all things on land and sea. In order to curb Gilgamesh's seemingly harsh rule, the god Anu caused the creation of Ankita a wild man who at first lives among animals. Today, we would interpret the Epic of Gilgamesh cautiously, given its claim that Gilgamesh was part divine and part human. But there is the suggestion that Sumerian kings were not always virtuous. Durant comments about the period after Eurotagina. This lucid interval was ended normally by one Lugal Sagisi, who invaded Lagash, overthrew Eurotagina, and sacked the city at the height of its prosperity. The temples were destroyed, the citizens were massacred in the streets, and the statues of the gods were led away in ignominious bondage. We see the first reference to law in Durant's Our Oriental Heritage. Meanwhile, Ur of Chaldees was having one of its one of the most prosperous epochs in its long history from 3500 B.C. to 700 B.C. Its greatest king, 
Orengur brought Western Asia under his specific sway and proclaimed for all Samaria the first extensive code of laws in history. But soon that glory faded. The warlike Elamites from the east and the rising Amorites from the west swept down upon the leisure, prosperity, and peace of Ur, captured its king, and sacked the city with primitive thoroughness. While the creation of formal law by the Sumerian king, Orengor, should not be minimized, this is not the civil government model of Locke's second treatise of government. This is still the top-down model of monarchy imposed by force. Nowhere does Durant suggest that the Sumerians came together, agreed upon a set of laws, and elected Orengor as their governing executive. Let's turn our attention to Egypt. Will Durant describes the role of the Egyptian scribe in our Oriental heritage. Every visitor to the Louvre has seen the statue of the Egyptian scribe, squatting on his haunches, almost completely nude, dressed with a pen behind his ear as a preserve for the one he holds in his hand. He keeps record of work done and goods paid, of prices and costs, of profits and loss. He counts the cattle as they move to the slaughter or corn as it is measured out in sale. He draws up contracts and wills and makes out his master's income tax. Verily, there is nothing new under the sun. <clears throat> With these scribes as clerical bureaucracy, the pharaoh and the provincial nobles maintain law and order in the state. Ancient slabs show such clerks taking the census and examining income tax returns. Through Nile readers that measured the rise of the river, the scribe officials forecast the size of the harvest and estimated the government's future revenue. They allocated, they allotted appropriations in advance to governmental departments, supervised industry and trade, and in some measure achieved, almost at the outset of history, a planned economy regulated by the state. Durant continued to describe that the pharaoh was the supreme court, and that the word pharaoh was a synonym for emperor. Durant's description tells us much about ancient government and how much he resembles government today. Clearly, the, scribe, the scribes have been used to weaponize the central government in its oppression of the people, as have multiple federal agencies today been used to suppress the people. The, the scribes used accounting as a tool for that purpose. Notice that pharaohs did not need a 16th Amendment to their constitution in order to implement an income tax. Pharaoh was the constitution. Whatever pharaoh claimed was law. In effect, all wealth belonged to pharaoh, and pharaoh determined what share of the wealth everybody else was to get. Of course, economic reality created limits, even on pharaoh. If the Egyptians were pressed too hard by Pharaoh, revolts might arise. But the principle remained. Pharaoh got the first cut of the wealth, and then the close circle around Pharaoh, and then the provincial nobles. It was the latter whose job it was to keep the ordinary subjects in place in areas too far from Pharaoh to administer, thus demonstrating an early example of feudalism. feudalism. Uh, the scribes 
and other lowly servants of the government were, no doubt, accorded lesser shares, but enough to assure a stake in the system. At the bottom of the economic stack were the slaves. If we in the United States believe there is a great distance between the government under which the average Egyptian lived and our own government, consider that there is no limit specified in the 16th Amendment on the amount of our wealth the federal, in, uh, the federal government may seize from us. We must rely upon the wisdom and judgment of our federal representatives in Congress to control the voracious appetite of government. As our officials have become increasingly remote from us, we see that their legislative actions are more persuaded by the special interests that can fund their campaigns for office than any pressure the average citizen might bring to bear upon them. Durant continued, security of life and property and the continuity of law and government rested almost entirely upon the prestige of Pharaoh maintained by the schools and the church. Today, the influence of the church is ignored. Government-controlled school systems play a major role in concentrating power in the federal government. It should be emphasized that this was not the model of law that emerged from St. Thomas Aquinas' treatise on law, in which both the divine or scriptural law and the natural law are derived from eternal law. Human or positive law is derived from divine and natural law. This was human law directly derived from the will of the Pharaoh. As the Constitution of the United States has been increasingly undermined by advocates of positive law, it would seem that the major difference between Egyptian and American law is simply the identities of the ruling elites. There is suggestion of corruption in the Egyptian feudal system. When Pharaoh traveled, the nobles met him at the feudal frontiers, escorted and entertained him, and gave him presents proportionate to their expectations. The Egyptian system was the ultimate in reverence and top-down control. The Pharaoh, with the help of the priests, assumed divine descent, powers, and wisdom. This alliance with the gods was the secret of his prestige. In any case, the Egyptian government was a non-fit deluxe model of civil government. Let's move on to Babylonia. Babylonia may even have developed an early commercial class. Durant noted how technology would have played part in this. Buildings were mostly of adobe, clay mixed with straw, or bricks still moist and soft were placed placed one upon the other and were allowed to dry into a solid wall cemented by the sun. It was observed that the bricks in the fireplace became harder and more durable than those that the sun had baked. The process of hardening them in kilns was then a natural development, and thenceforth there was no end to making of bricks in Babylon. Trades multiplied and became diversified and skilled and as early as Hammurabi, industry was organized into guilds, or they were called uh, tribes of masters and apprentices. Local transportation used wheeled carts drawn by patient asses. The horse is first mentioned in Babylonian records about 2100 BC, 
as the S from the East. With this new means of locomotion and carriage, trade expanded from local to foreign commerce. Babylon grew wealthy as the commercial hub of the Near East, and the nations of the ancient Mediterranean world were drawn into closer contact for good and and ill. As a result of all of this trade, Babylon became, under Nebuchadnezzar, a thriving and noisy marketplace from which the wealthy sought refuge in residential suburbs. Was there a difference between the systems of law in Egypt and Babylonia? Bartleby.com attempts to answer that question. According to Hammurabi's law, law code, and the Egyptian Book of the Dead, Mesopotamian society valued strong central authority to ensure prosperity through hard work and vigilance. While Egyptians' emphasis of, while Egypt's uh, emphasis on faith required humility and submission to one's superiors to create a stable society. Amirabi's law code reveals that Mesopotamian values of hard work and self-vigilance were advocating a powerful, central authority. According to Britannica.com, the Code of Hammurabi consists of his legal decisions that were collected toward the end of the reign and inscribed on a diorite stella set up in Babylon's Temple of Marduk, the national god of Babylonia. These 282 case laws included economic provisions, prices, tariffs, trade, and commerce, family law, marriage and divorce, as well as criminal law, assault and theft, and civil law, slavery and debt. Penalties varied according to the status of the offenders and the circumstances of the offenses. Although differences between the two systems of law should be expected based upon the differences in the orientation of societies, the evidence in both cases points strongly to top-down approach to lawmaking. While the corresponding monarchs may have included their closest advisors in drafting the systems of law, apparently these monarchs had the final say concerning the letter of the law. This was a process quite foreign to the drafting of the Constitution of the United States. Although only a part of the Code of Hammurabi is Lex Talionis, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, its most memorable part, we moderns shudder at the harshness of the part of the Code, perhaps forgetting that the moderation of law by the concepts of Christianity came later in time. And let's conclude with Assyria. Durant noted a difference between Assyrian civilization and its predecessor, Babylonia. If we should admit the imperial principle that it is good for the sake of spreading law, security, commerce, and peace, that many states should be brought by persuasion or force under the authority of one government, then we should have to concede to Assyria for the distinction having established in Western Asia a larger measure and area of order and prosperity than that region of the earth had ever, to our knowledge, enjoyed before. In contrast to the role of trade in Babylonia, Assyria asserted its influence through brutal force. The army was the most vital part of the government. 
a captured city was usually plundered and burned to the ground, and its site was deliberately denuded by killing its trees. The loyalty of the troops was secured by dividing a large part of the spoils among them. Their bravery was ensured by the general rule of the Near East that all captives in war might be enslaved or slain. The Assyrian lot did not rely upon the army exclusively. Next to the army, the chief reliance of the monarch was upon the church, and it paid lavishly for the support of the priests. The formal head of the state was, uh, by concerted fiction, the god Ashur. All pronouncements were in his name. All laws were edicts of his divine will. Pardon me. All taxes were collected for his treasury. All campaigns were fought to furnish him, or occasionally another deity, with spoils and glory. The king had himself described as a god, usually an incarnation of Shamash, the sun. Extension of the king's administrative powers and followed that familiar pattern. Local administration, originally by feudal barons, fell in the course of time into the hands of provincial prefects or governors appointed by the king. This form of imperial government was taken over by Persia and passed on from Persia to Rome. The prefects were expected to collect taxes to organize the corvée for works which, like irrigation, could not be left to personal initiative, and above all, to raise regiments and lead them in the royal campaigns. Durant summarized Assyrian civilization in this matter. All in all, the Assyrian government was primarily an instrument of war, for war was often more profitable than peace. It cemented discipline, intensified patriotism, strengthened the royal power, and brought abundant spoils and slaves for the enrichment and service of the capital. And Assyrian history is largely a picture of cities sacked and villages or fields laid waste. This pattern of violence and government would be repeated throughout history from Genghis Khan and Tamerlane to Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin. Of the four ancient civilizations considered, perhaps Assyria was the worst and Babylonia the best, but none approached Locke's Locke's ideal of civil governance. Ah, thank you, Phil, particularly the research you've done on these ancient civilizations that, that most of us are, are not that familiar with, unless, of course, we have read the Bible where Babylon and the Syrian Empire always figure big into uh, the history in their interactions with Israel. But uh, it's fascinating to me, as we looked at these four, that in a sense, all four of them find a religious base for their law. Like you mentioned about Assyria, that the uh, all the pronouncements of law and the taxes and all, those were connected with their god, Ashur. And so it really was a religious conception of law and government. So that, that's number one there as an illustration. Likewise, in, in Babylonia, uh, again, we find that uh, it was uh, the god Marduk in which the code of Hammurabi was found in his temple. So clearly it was, in a sense, we call it Hammurabi's, but maybe it might be better called the uh, uh, Marduk, uh, the god that they worshipped, his uh, his set of laws for uh, their people, but the legitimacy for the laws was obviously being pointed out by its connection with their their god Marduk. 
Uh, and likewise, you know, when we turn back before that and look at the previous ones in Egypt, it's even more evident because the Egyptians had a theology that made the Pharaoh himself to be a god. You know, that's why the Pharaoh that Moses confronted was laughing in his face. How dare you tell me that there's some other god greater than me coming here to tell me to let my slaves go to this god? I'm the, I'm the god. I, I'm the one that they are to serve because I am the god of Egypt. And he believed that. He sincerely believed that. And actually, the ten plagues that fell upon uh, the land of Egypt as God sent them were to persuade himself, the king. Uh, and his people, that their theology was false. They were worshiping an idol. <laughs> Pharaoh in no way could prevent these disasters from coming upon uh, the, the people of Egypt because the God of Israel was more powerful than the God of Egypt, Pharaoh. So again, and Pharaoh's uh, words basically were, were the legal system that um, uh, would be established in that land. And and again, Sumeria, we have maybe a little less information about about that ancient uh, civilization, but again, clearly there was with the Gilgamesh and his. There was this understanding that the legal system, the government itself, was calling on its legitimacy from a divine source. They weren't just saying, "Hey, we're people, and uh, you know we're stronger than you are, and if you don't obey what we tell you to do, we're going to kill you." Well, they were communicating that. But that's not all they were communicating because they recognize that that's a very loose kind of control you can have over a person. Because as soon as that group of people or, or individuals think that they have more power than you do, or maybe they can come together and overthrow you, you're toast. So it's far safer in these ancient civilizations for them to have a religious backing, which to me is actually an echo of what we're reading in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Because God is the one who ordained human civil government. These false gods, they had stepped away from worshiping the true God. They were worshiping all these idols. But they still knew that civil government was ordained by God. And therefore, they had to make the connection to persuade their people who knew enough about Genesis, knew enough about the flood, that, that, that they were connecting their legal system and their government uh, with the God who they claimed that the people were worshiping. So I'm fascinated, Phil, because I see all four of those civilizations, that same connection between a religious justification for law and, and civil government. It, it certainly is there. There's no question about that. But today we have a, a secularism that is substituted for religion. Um, this results in the elevation of humans into godlike roles. Consider that an American president, for example, on his own can launch, um, can initiate war with uh, Yemen, for example, um, or uh, determine that, that our borders should be open. None of these are decisions that should be made by individuals. These are decisions that ought to be made uh, certainly in concert with uh, uh, by the representatives of the people. Yeah, and I, I was fascinated that you mentioned that, uh, I forget whether it was Assyria or Babylon, but the idea that when you paid taxes, you were actually making payments to the God, you know, uh, uh, that it wasn't uh, payment to the government you were making, it was payment to your God that you were making. And therefore, there's, you know, the kind of religious enforcement of this idea that this is a sacred duty 
It's not simply, I'm trying to avoid the IRS from come, you know, destroying my life and stealing my property. And so I'm going to pony up whatever it is they're demanding. But it, it sure kind of reminded me, it's like, uh, well, actually, uh, we have a secularized version of that today because the IRS, as many people know, you know, there's no fixed standard uh, regarding your tax return. You could actually call the IRS experts. These are the people that are supposed to know the IRS code cold, inside and out. But actually, the code of the IRS is so large, so voluminous, no one human being can know the entirety of it. It's impossible. So you can call up uh, twice and get two different advisors at the IRS that will give you two different pieces of advice regarding how you fill out your return. But wait a minute. If you accepted the one advice and you filled it out the way they said to do it, but then whoever processes your return disagrees with what that other person said, you're in trouble with the IRS. But this is absolutely insane unless you think the IRS is God. Because then God can be completely arbitrary, do whatever he pleases, and one day do this and one day do another. By well, that's not the God of the Bible. But that's the pagan idols, you know, pagan idols like Allah are completely arbitrary. One day they'll do this, one day, another day, something completely, and there's no rhyme or reason. You can't figure it out. You're just a mere human being. So don't try to figure it out. However, the God of the Bible is consistent. He, uh, his principles are laid down in his word and he follows them consistently throughout. But the idols, they're very inconsistent in their application. So I just kind of drew that, that interesting parallel as you were, you're telling us about the idea that uh, you were making payments of your taxes into the temple treasury of the particular idol uh, worshipped by that civilization. Yeah, it's very interesting. Did anybody in in the history that we talked about, did anybody uh, uh, make a note of those gods showing up to to use their uh, uh, their funds to buy a ticket to one of the uh, uh, sports event of the time? No, the <laughs> you know, the gods never get get a chance to consume. Somehow the funds get shuttled off the human beings. Mm-hmm. And fascinating also that that you have shown the distinction between each of those systems. Those four were definitely religiously based governments. You know, pagan religions to be certain, idol worshiping religions, but they were all religiously based. But it's claimed today we have a secular base. In other words, not like our founders who believed in the God of the Bible and that his law was the law of the land, and that uh, that was the law of nature, nature's God, that they were seeking to develop a system of government that would protect the God-given rights, the God of the Bible, who gave rights to us human beings. So they also had a very clear religious perspective in developing our civil government. However, today, in a sense, we've cut the root, the root connecting us to that divine uh, authority for law, and now where does that leave us? It, doesn't it put us in the situation of, you know, the bully on the playground? What, why is the bully on the playground successful? Well, he's stronger than, and he can beat up and intimidate more people, you know, steal their lunch money and get away with it, all the kind of things. The bully on the playground gets away with it because everybody's intimidated and fearful of him. Isn't that the kind of civil government we have today? The bully on the playground, the, the, the biggest example, of course, is the IRS, the worst and most extreme bully. And by the way, if you look believe the IRS is a bully, I encourage you to go and look for, if they haven't taken it down, down again, from freedom to fascism, from freedom to fascism, uh, a documentary put together by Aaron Russo, who was coming at it from a 
you know, a blank slate sort of perspective. And he was trying to investigate where was the law under which the IRS was operating. And he got some very, you know, uh, astonishing news to him. But uh, I encourage people to watch that from freedom from fascism because it's totally arbitrary. And, and the connection with divine law has been cut. And therefore, it's put us in a situation where human beings get to make up whatever they think law is. You know, so if they think walking into the Capitol is a crime, but burning buildings in Minneapolis in the summer of love in 2020 is fine. It, you know, so our dual standard of justice that we're experiencing, I mean, what, what they're prosecuting Trump for, you know, Biden has done far worse than that, but he's skating scot-free. Why? Why is there? It's a dual standard of justice because of the same inconsistency we see in a human being being the head of the government. And I guess maybe the closest would be that, that, like you mentioned, that the Pharaoh, they believed Pharaoh was God, and therefore whatever Pharaoh said law was is what law was. And if he said today it's black and tomorrow he says, no, it's white, well, then I guess you got to shift to whatever he says, you know, because that's the law, whatever comes out of his mouth. If today it's like, okay, uh, you know, pedophiles are criminals, but tomorrow it's like, oh, no, 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 pedophile is a different orientation and we need to respect and honor you know, that, that kind of garbage we see with transgenderism, with sodomy that in the past 20 years has taken hold of our country. It's because we've cut the root of the connection with divine law and now we have man-made law. And I would argue that that's a very dangerous thing. And I think each one of those uh, civilizations that uh, you've outlined show how dangerous that if is. If you look at the uh, how secularism has arisen. I think the French Revolution gives us uh, probably the best example. This is where you see the replacement of the church with secular, uh, with an entire secular program to include a calendar that uh, departs from, from the past. So it's a matter of, um, if you look at that, uh, you see the pendulum swings towards the extreme and finally, it comes to an end with the uh, beheading uh, at the guillotine of Robespierre, and people start to swing back more towards something that they could, they could, that makes more sense to them. That there is a role for religion. That uh, religion and reason are not enemies. Uh, and I think this is a point that that was made by by Thomas Aquinas that uh, both exist and both support each other. I'd like to uh, bring this up to date, um, the idea of the bureaucracy being uh, in charge instead of the, the representatives of the, the people. Uh, the Chevron principle enshrined by the Supreme Court, you look at that, and basically what that says is that the bureaucracy is right until proven wrong, just the opposite of the common law uh, principle. Mm-hmm. Ryan. And, and you mentioned the French Revolution, but that's just the first example of a completely secular government. Uh, you can look at all communist governments, whether it's communist USSR, communist China, communist Venezuela, communist Cuba, on and on. They are all of the same ilk. That is, they believe that they're human beings and not just any human beings. It's the human beings that are members of the Communist Party that these human beings are the ones 
that get to make all the rules, all the laws, and they can make them regardless of the the God-given rights of any of the people. So the Uyghurs in, in the, uh, what's, what's uh, Western China, they are being systematically butchered for their body parts and their body parts are being sold on the open market or the black market, excuse me, being sold on the black market for a huge profit. In fact, it's probably the most profitable thing that China, where their, their whole economy is now stumbling towards destruction, but their black market sale of people's organs is still going on because they have no respect for the right to life of any human being. And therefore, they could determine, now oh, the Uyghurs today and whoever we want to pick, whatever ethnic group or whatever socioeconomic group, the poor or the elderly, whatever, they could pick them and just kill them. There's no right to life under communism. There's no right to property because the whole purpose of communism is to destroy the institution of private ownership of property. Karl Marx said that. Uh, and you go on, the right to life is gone, the right to property, and obviously the right to liberty, because uh, as Alexander Solzhenitsyn discovered, uh, you fall on the wrong side of the political spectrum, you'll be thrown into the gulag and suffer there and probably die in the, in the gulag. So it's not safe for our God-given rights if you have a system of government that's uh, disconnected from divine law. Yeah, probably the Gulag Archipelago uh, is the best example of this, in, in that case, a 74-year uh, experiment uh, in uh, this idea that uh, we don't need to have a religion-based uh, morality, that uh, there is an alternative morality, and of course, it is class-based. Well, we see what that, how that turned out. Uh, and it was just the worst example of man's humanity against uh, man. Mm -hmm. and, and most people speak of the evils of Hitler. Hitler was deeply evil, but Hitler didn't even accomplish four, uh, less than a fourth of what Joseph Stalin did. Yeah, Hitler may have killed 10 million, but Stalin easily killed 40 million people of his own country. And he was outdone, of course, by Mao Zedong that some estimates say in China killed 100 million of his fellow citizens. 100 million. Mass murder, genocide, you could call it. And that's really what the CCP in China is doing today with the Uyghurs. They're doing genocide, killing off a whole people group. And that's what happens again when you disconnect human civil government and uh, human law from the divine law and the divine pattern of human civil government. So we as a people need to take notice of and learn something from history. As one famous historian said, if we don't learn from history, we will be doomed to uh, repeat its uh, mistakes. I'm paraphrasing him, of course, but that's what we're seeking to do here at We the People. The Constitution Matters. You can communicate with us using my email, dwhitney, D-W-H-I-T-N-E-Y, at The American View. Check out our website, uh, 1180wfyl.com on the podcast, the very bottom most entry, We the People. Uh, enormous amount of resources I encourage you uh, to uh, check out and to learn from because we need a grassroots revival in our country of this understanding, the understanding of our founders' view of law and government. There is a creator God. Our rights come from him and from him alone. And the only purpose of human civil government is to protect our God-given rights. Join us again next Friday morning, 8 a.m. We the people, Constitution Matters.